Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. We know that we have a heart problem in America. Yes, uh, that's Reverend Barbara at the convention. America, he said, needs a defibrillator. Yes, but I feel like America's heart condition was a founding principle. I think America started without a heart. So does she have a heart condition or she never had a heart at all? Let me welcome to the show. He's a professor in the English department. Where is this? At Department of English at the, the Gregorian Professor of English at UPenn. Yes, I'm going here, but I'm really uh, about this book of yours. It is called The Future of Decline, Anglo-American Culture at Its Limits. I've been wanting to talk to this gentleman for a while. Professor Jed Esty is here. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here, Karen. Yes. Um, you basically, uh, you know, play taps on America's future. Uh, and I, I agree with you. But before we get into, you know, your your hypothesis, which is based on a lot of study and research, I, I want to know how do you identify in the world? Well, a lot of the story, I mean, first of all, yes, there is a playing taps about one version of America, maybe the version you had in mind when you talked about the founding, um, the, ver- the mythical version that America's never done any wrong, that America's always been the greatest, always been the freest. I think we need to let go of some of those ideas to become a better society. I really do. I think those myths, they, they fueled a certain kind of patriotism for a certain kind of American. And uh, I think they're played out and I think they're harmful now in a way. But how I identify, I mean, uh, you know, it's a very generational book. I start out by talking about being a child of the 70s and being, you know, a middle class white kid growing up in the 70s surrounded by a discourse in which an America that was supposed to be great was kind of crumbling. Vietnam, Watergate, Nixon, inflation, you know, very timely. And, and, you know, Trump world made it all come back to me, made it all come flooding back, being being the age that I am, being where I'm from. Uh, So I wanted to write a book that kind of brought that together with my own historical interests and, and expertise in the history of Britain, another great power that had to learn how to be a different kind of country in the world. Did it though? I mean, uh, Prince Charles last week or the week before said that, um, you know, Great Britain uh, needs to acknowledge its role in in the uh, transatlantic slave trade, which I thought, ah, because you see all of these countries that you colonize saying, take your crown and shove it uh, from Jamaica all the way through the Caribbean islands, uh, Barbados and, you know, it's not just independence anymore. It's like no more monarchy, uh, which, which, so if you already are done, why not? You know, but I asked that question because, you know, I feel like whiteness is at the crux of, of our issue, right? Because it's a made up construct developed to justify the horrors uh, committed uh, upon the Africans that they brought here, which not only did they erase culture and language, they also demonized them to be able to make, you know, make themselves, I guess, feel okay with what they were doing 
to these human beings that gave the world civilization. So you had to call it a dark continent. You had to label them as cannibals with small brains and people who, you know, were close to beasts anyway. And we we're saving them and rescuing them and giving them Christianity, which was uh, the first Christian was a Coptic Christian uh, in the, in Queen Candace's court, who was Ethiopian. The first Christian in the world was black. But somehow they're giving us something and I'm going to relate to it because I'm a descendant of a of an enslaved person or two or three or four. So I just I, I just I think whiteness is at the crux. So I asked that question, uh, Professor Esty, because I think more people who have very little melanin need to divorce themselves from this thing called whiteness. I do think you're right. I do think whiteness is at the crux or, you know, I would flip the equation and say, People keep saying, why is white supremacy so difficult to acknowledge, to recognize, and to root out? And, you know, part of my, my contribution to that question is, as long as Americans keep insisting that we're the greatest country in the world, as long as this language of national superiority is the common language of politicians and public figures, there's a hidden you know, payload in that language. And that payload is white supremacy. I, I really believe that. I really do believe that um, learning to talk about America as a good society, as a society with shared purpose, that outside that history of supremacy is, is really an important symbolic step. That, that piece of it is, is really, really meaningful to me because I'm thinking about, I think that when people talk about this image of Americana, it takes me back to this Congress, uh, you know, this Congresswoman being um, on stage and saying, you know, thanking Trump for defending white life. Right. Yeah. I think that there's so many people that when they hear America and they see images of air quotes Americana, they're not thinking about this melting pot. They're thinking about white America. Yeah. Right. And that's being sort of synonymous with that. But clearly, if you look statistically, I think one of those things that people are so afraid of is the fact that the country is becoming more diverse. The world is becoming less and less white anyway, right? And so how does that reconcile with this sort of survival mode that it feels like these radicalized white people in this country in particular have gleaned into, right? Like, is it is that is it a fight or flight type of- yeah. Well, exactly. And that's where both the panic and the optimism come in, right? Here's where we get back to the TAPS question. I think, I don't know if you two feel this way, how you've been feeling the last six months, six years, but one way to think about what's been happening is a white minority panic, a moral panic about losing ground in the world, losing ground in this society. And yeah, of course, people, when they panic, they dig in, they try to hold on to what's theirs. They re-mythologize everything. And everything becomes more polarized, more tense, uh, you know, and more full of hypocrisy and dangerous and toxic talking. On the other hand, isn't that a sign that the world is changing, whether privileged Americans or white Americans want to believe it or not? It's changing. And that, that's a big reason I wrote the book is, you know, it's just a fact of world history that whoever's on top isn't going to stay there. And the point isn't, oh, no, what if we're the second most powerful, the second richest country in the world? The point is, hey, when we let go of that crown, a lot can change. A, a way of rethinking who we are as a people, as a society, that can change. That's the optimistic side. Mm. Uh, Professor Jed Esty is here. Um, but how? 
how the future of decline is the book. How do we change when the myth around greatness was, was a myth, George Washington, all of that cherry tree Lincoln. I mean, this country literally crafted itself through myth. And so for you, you know, writing about this and before, you know, you answer the question, because I always do this compound question thing, because I'm thinking in real time, you, you, you draw a through line from Great Britain, Great Britain's demise to America. Mm-hmm. Walk us through what that looks like, because I, I was talking last last week on the air, 3000 year reign of Egypt, the Turks, I think it was 900 years. You had the Roman Empire, about 600, the Greeks, uh, four four five hundred. Uh, Great Britain, another 400, 450. And America is now rounding into two, close to 240, 250. Yeah. What, what does the decline look, when, when do you know a superpower has, has run its course? What are the signs? Yeah, well, the signs are on the ground. I mean, this is the last year America will be the biggest economy in the world. It's a fact. It happened in our lifetimes. It's happening in front of our eyes. China is going to be and China is going to be the biggest economy in the world if it isn't already. The Asian economies are going to be the dominant economies of the next hundred years. It's in some, your question is really both complicated and simple. Simple part is from 1820 to 1920, Britain was the dominant power in the world. From 1920 to 2020, America was the dominant power in the world. Now we got to look ahead from 2020 to the next hundred years, and it's going to be a different story. So that, that's the basics of the economics. Now, the cultural story, the symbolic one we're talking about, that's the interesting one. And I, I you know, uh, Karen, I think the most important thing I learned from studying British responses to their period of contraction, their period of social shrinking, is that a lot of historians, and I, I follow here, for example, one guy named Stuart Hall, who's really important in my book, um, you know, they, they made the point that British citizens were taught in the 1890s, 1900s, 1910s, that the purpose of the country, the British Empire, was to conquer other people, was to, was to rule the world. And it, it had to be taught, it had to be sold through popular culture and through political rhetoric. And it was sold, and it was sold successfully. But his point, Stuart Hall's point is, if you can sell something, you can unsell it. If you can change the minds of the people about what the national mission is to make it an imperial mission and a mission of conquest, you can also sell a different mission. And this is the thing I think is most striking to me about how few Americans talk about this. At a certain point, America stood, however improperly and, um, and, and partially, America stood for something other than pure power and pure economic and military dominance. Well, through the Cold War, it came to be more and more Americans. What does America stand for? We're number one. We're the best. We're the greatest. We're the freest. That's an ultimately empty mission. There's no real values there other than staying on top. And this is like, okay, I believe, I do believe optimistically that a different set of national values and national purposes could be put in that place. Is that why um, on your cover you have a, it looks like a spaceman upside down. I'm yeah. watching. I'm watching for all mankind, which posits what if Russia got to the moon first, right? And it's working out this geopolitical, like moral, moral, you know, dilemma around. You know, we've painted this country as evil, but yet we're the ones actually 
going to space with guns and <laughs> bombing, you know, shooting and killing people. And are we really good? You know, and it's raising a question now. And and for a long time, America was about, you know, innovation and bringing the world all of this, you know, and, and you're right to your point, uh, Professor Esty, we not we and I and I, I'm hesitating saying we I'm struggling right now because for most of my life, it was a we the last 15, 20 years, I, I can no longer feel a part of the we. And maybe, you know, if I thought about it for one moment, maybe America was never America to me, to quote, you know, Langston Hughes or Frederick Douglass, what to the slave is the 4th of July. Like we were never included in that constitution where we were three fifths of a human being just for political power. Once again, power. Yeah. I'm, I'm struggling. Well, I think what's changing I mean, as you said, by citing Langston Hughes and by what you said at the very top of the of the conversation, this is a long story of people not feeling they can connect to the national mission. But I do think, you know, let's say white liberals are peeling off from that version of it. I, th- I think what Trump did is isolate a kind of racially exclusive and purely conservative or nostalgic version of America. Like, let's go back to the 50s. When some people had the power and other people didn't, when we had this mythic kind of Cold War projection of America. And that's the point about I want to make in the book about declinism, which is whatever side of the political spectrum you come from or whatever historical experience you represent. If you only think about America as lost greatness, as something that was once bigger than it is now, or better than it is now, that's always going to be conservative by definition. That's like, let's go backwards. And going backwards is the problem. Like that's the, the white moral panic that I'm talking about is like, if we go backwards, we'll have more power, but it's not right. It, uh, you have to go through it. And that, that the thing about Britain that we didn't say that's so interesting is Americans know this stuff about Prince Charles. They know this stuff about the, the monarchy and the empire. But what Americans don't know is Britain is still an incredibly rich country. It's, you know, it lost its empire and it shrank down to much smaller size. But, but for a lot of people, the life got better. You know, in terms of basic healthcare, education, transportation, real life, life got better when power went away. That's the that's why this book isn't just astronauts falling out of the sky and taps being played over the American flag. It's we can be a better nation and a better society if we let go of the language of greatness. All right. Uh, let me ask, ask you another question about you. I always ask people, you know, what was your road to Damascus? What? what was the one text or article or historic person that led you to this? I've had this conversation with Howard French, you know, and his studies, it, it came all the way back and he kept going and digging and digging and ended up with Mansa Musa's story. You know, it's like, how did we get here? Oh, Mansa Musa destabilized gold during his trip to Mecca. And it gave the Portuguese the idea that instead of going around Africa, let's go in and extract not just the gold, but then the people and off to the races. Right. What was it for you in, you know, sitting down with this material to even posit this? uh, Well, I have to give you two answers. I mean, one is I spent my 20s studying Britain as an American. And as I as I studied what it was like for people back home in Britain to see Jamaica and Egypt and Ghana peel off and peel away. And, and this country that was a dominant empire, quarter of the world's people and quarter of the world's land under their flag. 
in two generations, suddenly they become a kind of minor European nation. That's a dramatic change. And I didn't realize it then when I was in my 20s, I had a blind spot. But what I was really thinking about is what's it going to be like to be an American by the time I'm 80 years old? You know, uh, are we on the same historical path? And, and, you know, to study Britain, and I think this is true for a lot of white Americans, especially, it feels like a safer conversation to talk about what Britain did to conquer the world than to talk about America and race relations and, you know, and Native Americans and the relationship of exploitation that we have to all the countries that feed our economy, you know, the labor, both at home and abroad, that sustains American middle class and upper class life. So there's that. But then you know who it was. It's like Obama, um, actually, to go back to, to the moment where I thought, okay, this country's gonna be okay, was when Obama started quoting the 1950s theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr. I don't know if you remember this, but Reinhold Niebuhr um, wrote incredible, insightful essays back in the 1950s. And Obama cited them as one of his most important kind of moral and political guideposts. And one of the things Niebuhr said back then is, we don't solve our problems at home. And he meant race and class conflict. We don't solve them at home because we just keep pushing the frontier out. As long as we keep growing, we keep getting bigger and greater, we're never gonna solve those problems. And someday that bill is gonna come due and the frontier is gonna stop growing. And I believe that's what Trump represents. It's the end of American growth in that sense. And you know, disappointingly to me, although I think Obama said so many things right, you know, he kept reproducing this language of American greatness when he was reading Niebuhr, who said, what you got to do is live within limits in terms of rewiring our mythologies, our national mythologies, especially around race and especially around climate and growth. That concept of a limit of, of, of a smaller is more beautiful version of America is, I think, the key idea. Mm. As the first mm. African American uh, physically, because what does that even mean? I think he couldn't do, or maybe he felt he couldn't do, all, you know, because you have to be the exceptional Negro. You have to be, well, these people yeah. voted for me. I have to make sure that uh, I don't give them this fear yeah. that I might actually enslave white people because that's the fear, you know, they're going to do to us what we did to you. So I have to spend, spend the pendulum flip it back the other way so that you are completely comfortable and they voted for him again. I even had an totally. argument with somebody that told me he was more white than black. And I was like, Oh, this is interesting. So then I have to ask this question of everybody who's melanemic. That's a uh, term I got from Jane Elliott. So uh, I love it. I think it's apropos. Um, what does it mean to be white? Can you define that Jed? I mean, that's, that's a big question. I mean, for I think, for most people, what it means to be white is to not understand that you are white, to, to live with the luxury of imagining that race isn't a construct, that it's natural, that whiteness is natural, that blackness is a thing, you know, um, and to, to, to come somehow have a mythology that the world is made up of people in their pure tribes, which has never been true in any society. Um, and only that kind of purest thinking could support the kind of Christian white nationalism that we see, you know, cascading over these terrible, terrible changes in our society right now, the guns and the, and the Dobbs decision around choice and abortion. I mean, um, it requires a truly, as we've said, mythological white way of thinking um, 
to, to, to believe that the state can reprogram people's choices and bodies that way, but can't undo the kind of gun culture of a frontier pioneer society. What does it mean for you? Because you, you identify yourself as, as a white man. Does that, does that have any meaning for you? Because oh, yeah, you I mean, say it, what does it mean? What does that mean? Well, I guess what I was, the story I was starting to tell about studying Britain is a recognition that I lived out my, my, my own white experience of loss of power and of the 1970s, which, which was a decade also of racial and moral panic, right? It was, remember, it was the, uh, the decade of the vigilantes and of New York falling apart. It was the thing that allowed the monster that Rudy Giuliani became to happen in a sense in New York, for example. Um, and I think that being fed mainstream, you know, white media coverage and living in a white suburban place as a, as a young person, I developed this sort of brittle sense that America was this fragile thing and that if things changed, everyone was going to suffer. And, you know, I've been trying to outgrow that through thinking and through study and through research and, and trying to use this British historical precedent, not the way most people use it, which is like, oh, damn, look what happened to that country. That's going to happen to America. And we're going to be this puny, ridiculous country where people don't have enough. And that's crazy talk. Um, and it, it takes a long time to deprogram that kind of thinking. Um, and that's why, you know, this book and this conversation we're having today is just the beginning of that deprogramming. But when the, when the world is changing the way it is, when America is becoming a number two country, it means the talk and the walk can come together now, the next decade or so, in a way they never have before. Because the mythology is so easily proven wrong now that there's, but we also live in a world of blatant misinformation, right? Like I, I love the fact that we're having this conversation, but um, the people I feel like who need to hear this conversation don't read books. They watch, they watch Tucker Carlson, right? Yeah. And so how do you, what, what is the machine have to look like well, to get that level of reprogramming out yeah, there? Yeah, I mean, this, who, who this has to be involved. Well, two, two things. I mean, it's schools and it's media. It's the education world and it's the world you guys are a part of, culture and media. And at the education level, this is a real like street level symbolic struggle, right? Every school board in every town in America, every big city district, every small town district is about whether the curriculum can have a story of America's limits and America's faults built into it or not. And you they know, don't even want America's truth. I mean, they don't even yeah. want actual real history taught to, to their kids in school. Like, yeah, and, and that that's right. And that is, the I, for me, that's the most important battle line around white moral panic in 2022 is and it's like how that guy glenn youngkin got elected in virginia you know it's this, it's it's this re-scripting of american history a, a history we tried to co-construct from many classes and races and regions in the 60s and 70s in the era of official multiculturalism and that was a very flawed project but it's better than rewriting it according to this this kind of white mythology but then in the media you know you're right about taco carlson but I really, the people I'm trying to persuade is the Joe Biden, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton stripe of um, essentially white liberals who believe that the only way to talk about America is through this language of lost greatness 
or future greatness, that they're going to lose voters. And if, if they don't constantly repeat this mantra, we're the greatest, we're the freest, we're the biggest, we're the best. And, um, you know, on the other hand, I think a lot of progressives I know. They're yeah. going to lose white voters. Can I stop you there? I mean, I, I, I feel like that they're going to lose white voters because yeah. you won't lose me. I am. I'm, you know, college educated, but I'm good in every hood. Right. Like so. And I know that saying to me that American exceptionalism is a farce. I now take mm -hmm. you seriously because now we can have a conversation like adults. Right. Because. Yeah. Because well, now the, the clowns and the idiots have left the room. That's exactly the thing. I mean, that's what I was just about to say is progressive voters, black and white, um, I think are so um, disaffected, you know, rightly so from the idea of national purpose and national project, just the language of nationalism or patriotism, it's tainted now. But if you give that up, of course, you're giving up the center of state power, all the money, all the resources still get funneled through the nation. You can't give up on nationalism. And you can't give up on the idea that a popular, but not populist, meaning not a white racist exclusionary, language of patriotism can be reinvented. So to the white liberals who are repeating the mantra about American exceptionalism, I'm just trying to say to them, you have to stop. There's no, mm -hmm. there's no material justification anymore. And there never really was. And now's the moment to seize this opportunity. And to the people I, I work with mostly in universities, you know, a very progressive cultural left kind of circle, I want to say you can't just sign off and check out of national struggle and the national conversation. So one side has to start thinking, reinvent nationalism, and the other side has to let go of greatness. And if those two things can happen, the Tucker Carlson people, who we're never going to change anyway, will be more in the minority where we want them. Shrinking. Uh, uh, they they already are in the minority, and I think think that's the other myth. Oh, more because, in the minority. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you do you think we're talking with Professor Jed SD? Um, where are you from, by the way? Originally, I grew up outside Boston, Concord, Mass. Okay. All right. But I'm in Philly now. I, I work and live, you know, in the Philly area. Very very diverse. Philly is one of my favorite cities. Um, are you optimistic, Professor SD? That it's been a tough. What week. needs to happen? To yeah, is gonna happen. <laughs> I mean, I still, in the very back of my mind, in the bottom of my heart, think that the Trump world that we've had to live through is a symptom of a dying white mainstream, not white mainstream, white minority culture, um, a minoritarian backlash against a changing America that in 10 or 20 years time, I think things will look different. And I, I do believe, I wouldn't have written this book if I didn't believe that it's possible to actually rewire, shockingly possible actually, to rewire the way people think about American greatness and, and start thinking about American goodness. You know, people are so desperate mm. for that sense of decency. Yeah. And, you know, I think people can see, if you look at the British example, you can see, you can still be a very comfortable and functional society, or look at Japan, which had a very notorious shrunken economy after the 1990s. It's growing people, that's a happy society people. I mean, there's, there's problems in Japan, but there's people living there, living good lives. You don't have to just constantly grow and constantly stay on top. That is not a formula for being an American, quote unquote. Hmm. I wanna be optimistic. I love uh, the deep dive. So um, who, to Drew's point, the people who need 
to read your book? How do we get them to, to read your book? How do we get them to pick up the book and turn out the fucker Carlson? That's what I call him because that's what he is. Uh, how do we get them to turn him off? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to figure that out with you here today. And um, I mean, you know, I work in education, so I believe in the first of those those battlegrounds, right, which is the classroom. And I, I work with a lot of privileged kids and, and a lot of less privileged kids, young people. They're not really kids. I should call 21 year olds that. No, um, I call them kids, too. They're, they're yeah, kids to us. They're babies. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and and. And it's, it's an educational project for me it's, to think about this. And, and the reason I think history is so important, it's what, what Drew said earlier about, you know, how history of America is being rewritten. I'm trying to get us to think about holding together a world history. You know, and you, you cited a whole bunch of things that happened, Karen, in the history of colonialism and conquest. And, you know, I think we can really think about that. I do think that some global forces have overcome us you know, forces, right-wing, dictatorial forces, really scary forces. On the other hand, I think people all across the world now kind of understand the shared history of racial capitalism, of colonialism, of conquest, of environmental despoilation. And that means that we can tell a different kind of story in the future. It's not going to be just, here's your story of America in a can, in a box, mm. in a kit. It's going to be messier. It's going to be more complicated, but it's going to be more real. Uh, Tom Hartman has a thread that um, what you're saying is true. I think young people are going to save us, but then the people who are also committing the mass murders in this country are young people. So there's a, uh, something else going on. But he basically said that uh, it might be beyond hope because of the way in which this our 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 local local municipalities have been gerrymandered. Right? We have uh, Trump appointed more judges which then they push these horrible cases to the supreme court which he got to seat three people who are in their 50s uh who aren't probably going to go anywhere for a generation maybe more uh so they have the supreme court one co-equal branch of government they have most of the local judges as well uh now congress 2022 i said november is going to show us what we're made of can can they hold the Senate? Can the Democrats hold the Senate? I'm not confident that they can because of the thing. And then it's teed up to steal. We saw Bush beat yeah. Al Gore on a technicality in Florida where his brother was governor. I just, it's worse now. It's, yeah. it's worse now. It is. It is. And, you know, uh, but I, I think, you know, there's a lot of lessons to draw from the most extreme and hideous versions of the future that, that you're mapping out. And, you know, one is the corruption and minority seizing of our political system. Yes. The other is the, the fraying of the fabric of our towns and cities, you know, in these shootings. And, you know, just say one thing about white, white men and get back into like speaking about whiteness as frankly as we can in a context like this, you know, there's a lot of shame and disempowerment and panic among white men and, 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 and why they're so panicked, and, and I'm not saying that explains school shooters or people like you know do the, doing these shootings, but I do think it's important. One of the reasons it's important to talk about historical guilt and historical wrongdoing and uh, the real history of our society is at least when people say this was done to so and so by so and so, that's guilt, right? You did something wrong. Whereas 
a, a general cloud of shame, like you should feel bad about being black or you should feel bad about being white, that's super destructive. And I think part of the big problem of where our politics connect to our daily lives and our emotional lives around race is that if we talk more clearly about guilt, wrong and reparation, we wouldn't have this substitute language of shame. And, you know, this is what I learned from this Jamaican British historian, Stuart Hall, which is you can't shame white nationalists. You have to figure out a way to reconstruct the culture so that people can belong to a culture, you know, a NASCAR culture, a country music culture, whatever, that doesn't necessarily mean guns and racism and controlling women's bodies. It has to come to mean something else. You, you, you're not going to win the battle by shaming people for their strongest attachments to hunting, to fishing, to country music, to NASCAR. Like, it, it's about changing the meaning of those attachments, not mm. scorning those attachments. Oh, that's so tough, especially since... That's hard right there. Yeah, that's <laughs> tough. That's tough. But, I mean, you know, I think you have the blueprint. I don't know if it's going to be followed, though. But I appreciate you doing the work. And I want to continue the dialogue. So you have an open seat here to come back. All righty. Yes. Yes. Uh, Professor Jed Esty, thank you. And if you have kids at UPenn, he can go take one of his classes. Uh, the book is called <laughs> The Future of Decline, Anglo-American Culture at Its Limits. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to The Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.